So Adam, for those who like didn't know know you that much, can you like introduce yourself for the audience? Absolutely. Uh, th thanks for having me on. Really love what you're doing. Um, really appreciate it. My name's uh, Dr. Adam Petway. I'm currently the head strength and conditioning coach for men's basketball at the University of Louisville here in the U.S. Um, I also am an adjunct professor in the engineering department at Mississippi State University. Uh, my background <clears throat> is primarily in performance and strength and conditioning in the world of basketball. But I've dabbled in some speed power sports, such as uh, track and field, particularly in the sprints and the jump events, um, as well as um, biomechanics and different, uh, you know, biomechanical research and uh, how to apply that in the world of sport performance. Nice, nice. So I know you've been in the NBA before and you also work with like college setting before. So can you like uh, tell us a little bit about how is the experience with the pro setting? Yeah, you know, I think I think that's a good question. You know, uh, the the pro versus collegiate setting here domestically in the U.S. is a uh, night and day. I, I would say uh, first is the frequency of competition, right? Um, so in the college setting, you start your competitive season in November and you end around this time, if you're lucky, to make the championship. But most teams end around, uh, you know, mid-march mid so you're playing about twice a week on average and you're only probably going to play 33 to 38 games if you're lucky um where in the nba the volume and frequency of competitions really completely different your season starts in october um you're playing 3.5 games per seven days until the month of april and that's not including your preseason and training camp and then your playoffs which is like another season within itself so you know, the, these teams that make the NBA finals and deep runs in the playoffs to the conference finals could be playing, you know, all the way up until, you know, early to mid-June. So 82 games versus about 33 to 35 and then the frequency of competition. And then you have to also factor in travel, right? So, you know, in the current conference we're in, you know, all our games are played in the same time zone. And in America, you know, you have three different time zones, Eastern, you know, Central, uh, Mountain West and, and Western. So you could be, you know, <clears throat> right now it's 7 p.m. in, um, you know, where, where I'm currently at in the Eastern time zone. But if you're on Pacific, it's uh, three hours behind. So it's 4 p.m. So the, the travel involved and the mileage that you travel is completely different. Um, outside of just the logistical constraints of the schedule from pro to college, I think um, I think uh, the the training age factor must be discussed as well because you know when when you're in college it's very much developmental, right? You're you're getting kids in a window chronologically from from an age standpoint from the years of eighteen to twenty two. Um, now, of course, some kids may be older, especially now with like COVID year and you know the transfer rules. So you might get uh, you know a twenty two and a half, twenty three year old, but in the professional level in the NBA, you know, you, you might get a rookie that's, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old, or you might have a vet on their third contract. That's 33, 34, 35. Um, so, so again, how you would train that athlete on their third contract, just trying to make it to their fourth compared to a rookie would be completely different, uh, different personality types, different spots at where they're out of life. A lot of them probably had kids and a wife and, kind of a, were a little more established. Um, so the conversations that you had with those athletes were completely different. 
So really, um, from that aspect, uh, you know, it's two different roles. And the the other thing I'll say is, um, you know, college basketball is about the coaches. It's definitely a coaches league, right? Even though we've seen a lot of great coaches, you know, move on and, and retire recently, it's very much about the coaches. They're kind of like the mainstay of, um, you know, college basketball along with the institutions um, where the NBA, it's all about the players. It's a player's league. You know, your, your stars kind of uh, are the drivers of, of the league as far as Steph Curry, LeBron and Giannis and Joel and, and all of those guys. So it, it's definitely very much a players driven league where I think, you know, the NCAA or collegiate basketball is very much coach driven. Cool. So, uh, Let's say because like the volume of the pro setting and the volume of like the uh, the college setting is like when it goes to a pro setting, it's basically double up, right? So how is that as a performance coach? How exactly is different when preparing your athlete to like those like game volume? Yeah, that that's a good question. I think. Um... You know, in the in the pro setting, you really have to dichotomize, I think, in kind of flow charts, right? You know, you look at high minute versus low minute. And, you know, of a 48-minute NBA game, if you play above 15 minutes, I guess that would be considered in the high minute category. And then you have to consider your young versus your old players. You know, are you dealing with a 22, 23, 24-year-old kid or, you know, a 30, 33, 34-year-old man? And, uh you know, based on that kind of flow chart, you can kind of create like a decision tree on like, okay, an older athlete that's a high minute guy might get more recovery, more soft tissue, more uh, emphasis on, you know, maybe low CNS, more space densities as far as what menu items are going to get within the weight room or the training room or on the court uh, for their technical development. Um, and then let's say you have a young athlete who is a low minute guy. Well, that athlete's obviously going to get a lot more high CNS work, a lot more skill development work and technical development work on the court. Um, a lot more compound movements, um, at a higher rate of frequency. So, uh, much more high CNS and, uh, with a higher rate of frequency. Great. So, uh, when it comes to like training, like, uh, college player and like, those like NBA players, is there like, um, like when it comes to, like training players, how is, is it difficult to like, is it difficult to like communicate with those like players already at the pro level or is it about the same? Yeah, no, that, that's a good question as well. I think, um, I think it, at the pro level, it's more about relationships. Um, not to say it's not about the college, but, uh, you know, when you're dealing with an older athlete that's been around and seen a lot of different things, hey, you have to show competency, right? You have to show value. And that's true across the board. Not to say that's not true or you can be incompetent on the collegiate level. But I think, um, you know, an experienced older athlete values competency. And then they just want to know, like, uh, you know, that they can trust you um, in, in how you communicate, you know, what you're trying to convey to them. Right. So uh, again, it may be, you may get a lot of like, well, why are we doing this? And I love that question. Um, but if you don't have a solid answer for that, you may lose some of those older, more educated athletes where 
in the collegiate environment, you know, rarely are they inquisitive enough or curious enough to ask why. And, you know, we always hear, you know, at the university have a great answer for that, but it's more so, well, we're doing this because this is what coach wants and this is what the team environment is uh, dictating, right? So this is our exercise today. Here's what, you know, the list of what we're doing. Here's what we're trying to accomplish. Um, and we're doing it, right? We're on the pro level, particularly with those older athletes, it's like, hey, what has worked for you in the past? What is uh, your routine? And how can I help you facilitate that for 82 games to make sure you're available and working towards that next contract, right? So it, it's more so a partnership in the, in the NBA where, um, you know, in the collegiate environment, it's more of like a coach-athlete relationship where it's like, this is what we're doing. Great, great. So how exactly do you like get to the pro setting at the, at the first place? Yeah, that's a great question. I actually started as a high school basketball coach in Birmingham, Alabama. That was my first job out of high school, or excuse me, out of undergrad. And uh, so I did all of the strength and conditioning for, um, you know, the, the boys basketball team at John Carroll Catholic High School. And um, I was also the ninth grade boys coach. So I was running all the practices, you know, technical development, skill development, X's and O's, all the tactical segments. Um, you know, I was, you know, standing and doing doing all the, the scouting during games. So it was um, it was a good experience because it gave me a different perspective on the game. Um, from there. I went to the Catholic University of America. And what, what I found there is, you know, I really enjoyed the physical preparation aspect more so than, you know, the X's and O's and the tactics of basketball. So it was, it was, again, I was in a dual role where I was an assistant coach. So I was doing, you know, film breakdown. I was recruiting uh, potential student athletes to campus, uh, you know, as a, as a talent identification um, process. I was doing uh, you know, uh, tactical game plans, technical on-court development, but I was also doing all of the weight room sessions as well. Um, and, and I found out there that I really just valued and loved the physical preparation and more so than the tactics. So from there, I kind of went all in on, um, on physical preparation and strength and conditioning. And I went to, um, my first division one school working, it was George Washington university in Washington, DC. And, uh, the head strength coach there, there was a guy named Ben Kenyon. He's now the, the head strength coach for the Philadelphia 76ers. And he, he taught me a lot about, Hey, here's how you write a program. Here's how you, you know, a couple push pull versus squat hinge. Here's some assessments we do. Um, so he was like the first to kind of guide me through that process of being like a very organized and, uh, solid um, strength coach from a foundational standpoint. I spent a year with Ben in Foggy Bottom at George Washington. From there, I went to the University of Maryland. And um, that was the first like power five big time school that I had the opportunity to work with. And I, I worked with a guy named Kyle Tarp. And he's a great basketball performance coach. And he was the first to kind of exposed me to some methodologies where you can blend some of the movement patterns that occur on the court with what you're doing. So I was like, okay, you know, a lot of this makes sense to me. Like we're still going to squat and clean and deadlift and bench press and sprint and do plyos in a general segment. But uh, as we transition to 
higher levels of specificity, we're going to train movements like defending ball screens and closing out on shooters. you know um the movement patterns that occurred on the court with how we were training in the weight room right um so after my two years there i got the opportunity to work as an assistant strength coach at the university of arkansas i'm sorry i think my wi-fi just broke all right do you want to start back up yeah start right, right where we stopped <laughs> Okay. Well, what, what was the last thing you heard? Just about Arkansas? Uh, yeah, Arkansas. Okay, perfect. Uh, I'll just start that. I guess you could edit that. Yeah, of course, of course. Okay. And, and so, yeah, at the University of Arkansas, um, it's the first time I really got exposed to high-level speed power in track and field. So I think when I was there in 2016, you know, there was like eight to 10 student athletes that were Olympians, not coming back to train, but students at the school, you know, the uh, gold medalist in the pole vault, the gold medalist in the high hurdles, um, you know, medalist in the long jump, you know, um, you know, a couple of heptathletes that were just really high level athletes. And, um, you know, what was cool about the tradition there is a lot of the pros that would come back to train, um, you know, ended up, uh, you know, working out in, in our weight room. So I got to be around like a really, really high level of uh, sprinters and jumpers. So, so within that, you know, it kind of gave me a different perspective on like, okay, you can manipulate very various variables for like specific adaptations to kind of like phase in and out certain, um, certain, you know, bob motor abilities at certain times of the year. And then you want to kind of taper off and then, you know, peak for big events. So it kind of gave me a bigger appreciation for, you know, macro cycles and yearly training plans. Um, you know, relative to some of your bigger competitions like Olympic Games and World Championships and things of that nature. Um, so within that, I, I got exposed to, um, you know, a guy named uh, Boo Schneider, um, j just because he, he was a, a guy whose name kept popping up. And I was just trying to figure out, hey, I'm training a couple of really good sprinters and I don't know much about track and field. So I better kind of figure this thing out. Right. So I reached out to to a lot of people within my network and his name kept on popping up. And, uh, you know, we invited him on campus to consult. And I was working with a sprinter in 2015 and 16 who was, you know, prepping for the 200 meters in the Rio Olympics. And I was like, man, I, it's an important year. I got to figure this thing out. And so I invited him on the campus that fall um, as we were preparing for indoor season. And he said, uh, you know, a lot of wise things while he was on campus, but something that particularly stuck out with me was, um, you know, I was going to really impress coach with my knowledge of um, periodization and, you know, how we integrate technology into what we do. So we had years of, uh, you know, velocity-based training with Tendo units. Um, we had years of counter-movement jump data with force platforms. And I was like, hey, here's how we objectively analyze our athletes and here's how we use it to guide decision-making. And uh, I'll never forget, he was unimpressed and he basically were asking more so questions like, hey, what is Wallace's, uh, the athlete's projection angles out of the block? And I was like, well, I don't know. And I was like, well, you know, he, he asked, 
what's his flight to contact time, you know, in his drive phase? And I said, well, I don't know. And then he said, well, what's his pelvic position and speed endurance qualities the last 50 meters of his race? And I said, well, coach, I'm mainly in the weight room. You know, uh, I don't know a lot about what's going on on the track. And he said, well, if you want to get context to what you need to be doing, you need to get out on the track and be observant in the environment. And that's really when I kind of dove all in on this kind of uh, insight to biomechanical evaluation for athletes and, you know, going out on the track and filming a lot of block starts and filming a lot of acceleration and filling, you know, standing in the bank and filming how they come around the curve, you know, the last hundred meters is, uh, you know, it, it maybe didn't change any of my general physical preparation as far as what we were doing, but it definitely gave me more of a context of once we transition from general to specific, what that athlete needed to be doing to be successful, right? So uh, that model uh, is one that I use to this day with my athletes. And it's something that, uh, again, it became uh just an obsession of mine to try to apply the same model in a you know a team environment in an indoor court sport like basketball which is the one i primarily work with so when um when, when i was putting all of this together probably you know six or seven years ago i got a call from a guy um in philadelphia whose name is uh todd wright he's now the vp for the la clippers and he was like hey you know we're starting up a biomechanics department in Philly. Um, your name keeps popping up as someone that can potentially help us. Uh, is this something you'd be interested in? And uh, man, it was just an awesome experience just because, you know, my wife's from the Philadelphia area. We were looking to kind of get back there and, uh, you know, Todd and there was that, that whole Philadelphia crew of, you know, Dr. David Martin, you know, Dr. Scott Epsley, you know, Jesse Wright, who does a lot of really cool things. Um, as far as like, uh, you know, uh, the soft skills of coaching, we we're all there the same year, uh, which is just wild. If you think about it, it's just so many awesome people uh, together and, you know, and we were pretty good at the time. So it was just an awesome experience. Um, you know, I spent two years there as the lead biomechanist and uh, I'm pretty sure I'm <laughs> I'm docked with, you know, I think pretty much every major league baseball team here in America has a full-time biomechanist um, with their organization. I think I was actually the first, though, in uh, the NBA full-time ever. So that that's something that's pretty cool. But I think it's something you're going to see a lot more of within, uh, within probably the next five to ten years from uh, – from there, I went uh, from Philly in two years there after the bubble. I, I uh, took a job in Washington, D.C. as uh, the director of athletic performance for the Washington Wizards. So it's funny how it comes full circle. I was at a really small school in D.C., kind of worked my way up. You know, I left and then come back in, you know, 10 years time. And then you're the director of performance for an, uh, the NBA club there. So that was you know, kind of cool to see how it comes full circle. I worked with a lot of really good people there. Um, ironically, one of my best friends and co-authors of our my book, um, Basketball Mechanics, Ryan Richmond, he's an assistant coach there, one of my best friends, um, the director of player development, who's actually out in the Port Portland Trailblazers, uh, David Atkins, who's also a really good friend. He was there. We were all together at Maryland. Um, Alex Lynn was there, who's a player at Maryland when we were there. So it was just a it was a really fun year. Um, you know, it was a COVID year, learned a lot. My wife was actually still in Philadelphia. So I decided to move back after the season and, um, 
you know, uh, Coach Jumps, because I've always had such admiration for, for Coach Boo. So I worked at a smaller school uh, called uh, Westchester uh, University right outside of Philadelphia. And I was a horizontal jump coach um, as well as biomechanist. So I coached the long jump and the triple jump for both men's and women's. Um, we had some good success. Uh, you know, a lot of our kids hit their best marks of the season at conference champs, which is what you want. Um, had one girl who was a national qualifier as a multis. Um, so coached during the long jump in both indoor and outdoor. Um, you know, a couple of top five finishes at the conference meet. So, you know, again, as a novice, something, you know, that I could be proud of, um, you know, towards the end of last uh, outdoor season, I get a call from Coach Boo. And he said, hey, um, I've recommended you for a job at the uh, University of Louisville. Uh, their basketball coach is looking for somebody with a track and field background. I think you'd be a perfect fit. So again, you know, funny how things come full circle. You know, a, a basketball coach was looking for somebody with a track and field background, you know, and coach Boo of all people, you know, just happened to recommend me for it. So, um, and that brought me here to the university of Louisville. Nice. Nice. I did a few interview with, Coach Boo and he was good. He was a legend. Love him. <laughs> he is a legend. <laughs> yeah, I love yeah. him so much. Yeah. So for like all your experience with like uh with Coach Boo and with those great names with the NBA, how exactly do you, does it like change your view on like performance coaches like dive into like the technical and tactical tactical side of things? Oh, that's a, that's a uh, great question. I think um, in track and field, a lot of times the SNC is the tactical coach and the technical coach because they're the head coach making decisions on strategies. They're the biomechanist and the technical development coach. Hey, you know, we want a six-step approach today. We want you to set up your penultimate. We want you projecting at this angle off the boards. And then you go in and, uh, you know, you do your squat or clean or plyometric workout for the day, and you control all facets of what that athlete is, is doing. So from that standpoint, it's very advantageous to understand all parts of technical, tactical, and strength and conditioning in the track and field world. You know, basketball is a little different, right? <clears throat> I think it's important for strength and conditioning coaches to understand technical skill development and what the skill coaches are trying to teach. And I think it's under it's uh, advantageous for them to understand tactics and like, hey, do we play man or zone? Do we go over ball screens or do we hedge ball screens or do we ice ball screens? You know, what's our principles defensively? Are we like up to touch? Do we help a lot? Do we switch everything or do we primarily play man? Do we primarily play zone defense? You know, what are our secondary options on offense? I think that'll give you a, a context like we talked about earlier from when you transition from general to specific physical preparation, it will kind of give you a roadmap of where you need to be. You know, you're still going to do your you know, time under tension, higher volume for hypertrophy. You're going to still do your max effort for, um, you know, maximal dynamic strength development. You know, you might decrease some of that load and try to move it at a higher velocity for, you know, optimal power output. But at some point, you're going to have to transition out of the weight room onto the court 
So I think understanding the movements involved with the game is uh, is really, really important just to provide context for, for all of those uh, kind of subsets that we, we talked about. Cool. So uh, do we like just to like, just to help them like transfer as a, as we're talking about like basketball, do we need like really need to like mimic some of the movements like shuffle or like uh multi-directional movement using some sort of like bands, that kind of stuff to help us? Yeah, no, I think it depends on what you're trying to accomplish, right? Like um you can use bands, you can use sledge you can use raptor resistance like it really the the tool is irrelevant i think it just matters globally understanding the movement and the force application and the vectors at which you have to apply force at certain times at certain velocities is just uh, to to me it's just like you know the tool and application is irrelevant understanding that like okay in the frontal plane i need to apply force at this angle at this time at this direction to, you know, equal and opposite, get my center of mass moving in a way that will prevent dribble penetration. I think, I think to me, that's where uh, the mastery and the expertise really comes in. It's just not necessarily the tool, but it's knowing when to apply the tool and how that affects, um, you know, what you're trying to accomplish from like a, a specificity standpoint. Great. Great. So, uh, next thing I want to ask is like before we do the programming for our athlete, is there like some sort of like test or like screen movement screen or like some sort of like force play test you're gonna do before everything is? Yeah, you know we we do a myriad of different tests. Um, you know we have a Markowitz motion capture sister here at the system at the university. We have force platforms. We have uh. 3D cameras to measure bar speed and bar velocity. Um, we'll do combine testing, anthros, uh, body fat percentage, bod pods. So we, we do do like a myriad of different uh, physical tests and profiling. But to me, at the end of the day, like uh, watching them play basketball is the best test. And it's um, subjective in nature. But like you got to think it's always standardized. In fact, you know, you're going to have four teammates and five opponents in a 94 by 50 foot parameter where you have to shoot a ball into a 10 foot hoop, you know, and, uh, you know, depending on where you play in the world, you might have two halves or four quarters, you know, um, essentially the duration of the quarters are going to be standardized. There's going to be three referees, um, you know, whether you play in the NBA college or FIBA will dictate like a lot of like the different variants are subtle nuances within the rules, but it's pretty much standardized around the world. Um, for, for the most part. Uh, so I don't know anybody playing on 12 foot hoops. I don't know anybody shooting, you know, uh, non-spherical objects into those hoops. I don't know anybody playing with other, uh, you know, even number of uh, teammates where it's like, okay, six on six or seven on seven. So I think for the most part, you know, basketball as we know it is pretty standardized and pretty global. So I think having context to look at how athletes are accelerating, decelerating, changing directions, jumping. Do they jump off of one or two? Are they better going off of the right or their left? Um, you know, how are they with their non-dominant hand? You know, how do they transition? 
um, and project their center of mass horizontally, you know, when they run down the court. So I, I think <clears throat> all of these variables are really important when you build out like your, your uh, assessment, I would say, because like, you know, I, I love a standardized and repeatable neuromuscular assessment is the next guy. And I, I'm a big proponent of fourth plate testing, but, but at the end of the day, that should kind of validate what you see with your eye. And, uh, you know, it's a way to kind of anchor and look at fluctuations of that system during the season. But I think your best assessment is always just watching your athletes play their sport. Watching them, how how they move, how they jump, right? Yeah, for sure. So besides, like, uh, let's say besides, like, uh, we do programming. Let's say, how about, how about, like, uh, like, monitor their neuromuscular, neuromuscular fatigue, I'm sorry. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, so I think... Um... I think in a lot of the studies we did for my PhD thesis, we looked at neuromuscular fatigue and neuromuscular fluctuations in the competitive season. And what we found was, um, you know, we, we did the hands on hip repeat jump every day on our force platform. And we did it before and after practice. And what we found was, you know, um, acute neuromuscular profiling was more affected by temporal metrics, meaning they would rise and fall very uniformly with speed in game in, in performance, right? So a reactive strength index, a, a byproduct of, um, you know, jump height to contact time. When that was higher match day minus one, so was in game peak speed, right? So if you're looking at an acute neuromuscular variable to say, is the athlete ready for competition or ready for training that day? You know, some of your temporal metrics that are time dependent, you know, reactive strength index, rate of force development, um, impulse at certain milliseconds, I think uh, is a good way to go. Now, looking at the chronicity of the season or this idea of preparedness, is the athlete prepared to handle the preseason? Is the athlete prepared to handle the competitive season? What are they doing? Are they trending up or trending down? So if you're just looking at, you know, the snapshot of a whole, your peak values are way more stable, right? So they're going to be a lot more consistent, but looking at trend lines over time. So if you're looking at peak force or peak impulse or peak power or peak jump height, um, and you're looking at it over longitudinal span of, uh, you know, four, eight, 12, you know, 16 week segments, that's going to be a more stable segment. So that'll give you an idea. Are they trending up? Or are they trending down? So I think if you're looking at an acute state of readiness, some of your temporal metrics might be easier to pull out, your reactive strength index, um, you know, your rate of force development. But I think if you're looking and a coach comes to you and asks you, are we getting stronger? Are we trending in the right direction? You know, relative peak power, peak force, jump height, things like that are probably better metrics to gauge preparedness or the chronicity of the season as a whole. Cool. So I want to go back a little about like testing or like screening before you do the programming. So I know you like, like you mentioned, work with like different sports like sprint and jumps, also basketball. So for those like three different like sport, not, yeah, three different sports, um, how is, is there going to be difference when it comes to like screening, testing, or like monitoring the fatigue? 
Yeah, you know, I think your standardized and repeatable tasks, uh, typically what I've had successful in the past is just a counter movement jump, a counter movement rebound, and like a pogo or high frequency jump. So our jump testing is going to be the same. I think, you know, what you anchor it to is going to be completely different and what you look at, right? So to me, if the athletes are not jumping as long or as high in track and field, that's a sign of neuromuscular fatigue, right? So it's easier to tease out. You can run slower and jump lower in basketball and still have the same production as it relates to points, rebounds, assists, steals, blocks, you know, less turnovers. I think, I think, um, you know, in a fatigue state, a fatigue athlete, um, you know, what does that look like in basketball? Well, to, to me, a fatigue athlete, um, you know, are they short on their jump shots when they're typically not? Um, are they making poor decisions when they typically don't? Are they typically, you know, um, diving on the loose balls and get, getting first to 50-50 balls and crashing the offensive rebounds and they're, they're not that game? So I think it's a lot harder to delineate and tease out fatigue and what that is in basketball just because you can you can not jump as high or run as fast in the game and still produce statistically what your averages are even though you may be in a state of acute you know low state of readiness you could still perform so i think it's it's uh this idea of consistently underperforming from, you know, a distance or a speed and acceleration, deceleration, jumping standpoint. Cool. So last question before I let you go, okay. Um, you currently working at like University of Louisville for their uh, basketball team as a performance coach. Like you mentioned, they were looking for a co performance coach who has like track background. So uh as your experience how do you think that having a track background helped you with like uh training those like basketball athletes man i i think um i think it's everything just because basketball is played at lower angular velocity so it's easier to see it real time i think having context for acceleration and jumping is really important in pretty much whatever sport you know, you're talking about, it just occurs at a slower um, rate in basketball than it would out in the track, right? Or, you know, in the pit. I think just the ability to have the knowledge and skill set to increase capacities, right? So how can you make your athletes run faster, jump higher or longer is really, you know, so it is the sport and track, but it is super advantageous in the sporting activity of basketball to increase all those physical parameters. Right. So it's like, you know, from a, from a technical skill development, you know, I don't teach dribbling or shooting or passing, but if you can get an athlete to run faster and be more economical on the court and jump higher, well, you're putting that athlete in a better position to be successful in their sport. Right. So I think having the context of some tools, and some strategies and understanding how to do that is really important. I think, you know, that that's probably one of the biggest things that I got out on the track is understanding, you know, a lot of 
a lot of coaches are pretty much doing very similar things, right? As far as like, you know, they're probably doing some sort of weight room and resistance training. They're probably doing some sort of flexibility and mobility routine. They're probably doing some sort of like acceleration um, and speed power development. They're probably doing some sort of jump training and plyometrics. They're probably doing some sort of conditioning. Um, I think, you know, out on the track, it gave me the appreciation of how to sequence all of those things to get the desired outcome, right? So if I know like we're, you know, focusing on max strength, like I can program in, you know, certain menu items at certain times to increase like absolute strength qualities. If I'm working on more so like a ballistic block and, you know, reactive strength qualities with short ground contacts, because we feel like that athlete is uh, lacking that on the court. Like I know how to use and sequence menu items to facilitate those adaptations. If I feel like an athlete can accelerate properly and, you know, has very poor mechanics as they project their center of mass horizontally or asymmetrical in their flight to contact time or poor posture and pelvic position and too, too much backside as they transition down the court, I have a set, a skill set and an eye and, um, you know, some menu items to address those uh, mechanical aberrances. So I, I do think it, it is important, again, having context for what's going on in the court. But a lot of the, a lot of the interventions that I might use, I got from, um, you know, Coach Boo and, you know, those uh, track and field mentors. Great. Great. I really love this. I really love this. So. For those who are interested in what we're talking about today, and you also post a lot of like uh, great content on your Instagram, where can they find you and where can they find those content? Yeah, uh, for, for Instagram, it is just uh, my name, Adam Petway. Um, and I'm going to I got away from it from a little while, but we actually have a lot of really good research coming out and uh, a lot of fun stuff we're doing this offseason. So I'm, I'm going to get back to it. And then if anybody has any follow-up questions uh, from anywhere in the world, um, you know, my email is just my name, adampetway at gmail.com. So feel free to follow up and, uh, you know, I, I would, uh, I'll definitely get back to you. And, uh, you know, I always love follow-up questions, you know, that provide a lot of good insight. And also where can they find the book? The book is available. Ultimate Athlete Concepts is a Yosef Johnson site. Uh, you know, he, he published, uh, you know, he has super training, triphasic Fergus Conley's book, Antonio Scalante. So you can order it there or you can get it off of Amazon. So the, the basketball mechanics, um, uh, from Adam Petway and Ryan Richmond. Great. Great. Love that. Love that. 